Who are the significant people in the world? I wonder who would you uh, highlight there? Who would you go looking for to see who are the people who are, are really going to change the course of history? And we should we look to the billionaires? Uh, a Mexican billionaire has now become the world's richest man, overtaking Bill Gates to the top spot. I read in the papers this past week. Maybe we should look to the billionaires. Or maybe we should look to the politicians. Uh, with the budget day announced, then the uh, election day looms ever closer as uh, MPs' wives appear on documentaries to get our votes. Uh, is it the politicians we should be looking to? Or maybe we should be looking to the scientists as they conduct their, 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 their great experiments to work out what happened at the Big Bang. Maybe we should look at uh, the celebrities in their beautiful frocks receiving their Oscars. Are they, maybe they're the ones that are going to change the world. Who, who would we look at, I wonder? I want you to turn your Bibles back up to Exodus chapter 4 because really we should notice that the way God works in the world is not necessarily through the people that we think are significant or that the media shines its light upon. God came and revealed himself to an old red-necked shepherd in the middle of nowhere. Who would have thought that? We've already read chapter 3, so let's just read chapter 4 now. That's on page 60 in the church Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, page 60 in the church Bibles. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you, or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, O oh Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform miraculous signs with it. 
Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go, so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. This is God's word. There was a time, perhaps, when Moses could have viewed himself as a significant person. At the age of 40, he was a somebody, the Hebrew who became the prince of Egypt, or one of the princes of Egypt. Perhaps he thought of himself as the hero. And last week we saw Superman Moses uh, in action, taking on Egypt one person at a time. But then it all went horribly wrong. A murder, an attempted cover-up that was exposed, and then he disappeared off into the obscurity of being a shepherd, taking care of someone else's sheep in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years. By the age of 80, Moses must have thought of himself as a nobody. And there was just this amazing day. It was his day job, his low-paid job, doing what he did, and yet everything changed when he got an unexpected appointment with God. It turns out that uh, at this stage in history, the most significant man at that time was an 80-year-old man living in menial obscurity. This was the man that God chose to reveal himself to and would call to be the agent, the human agent that would bring a great act of deliverance. And I've got three points this morning. Firstly, God's call to his mission in chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Now, everyone calls this section the burning bush incident, but of course, that's completely wrong because the bush was not burning. That's the mystery, isn't it? There were flames, but the, the bush was not being consumed. And this is what grabbed the attention of Moses. And as he gets closer, God calls him by name, Moses, Moses. You know, a talking bush on fire, but not on fire. This is what grabs his attention. And as he, as he walks closer, God reveals himself to him. God goes public 
on his plans. We, we read in chapter 1 and 2 that God had been observing it all. Now he's revealing to an individual that he cares and he's going to do something about it. And, and yet before he sends him on his way, God wants Moses to know who he is. God reveals his character to Moses. And really, if you're here today as someone who's not a Christian, then you should know this, that, that, the, that the claim of the Bible is that the God who, who made the universe is not a remote and disinterested deity. The God who made our ears and tongues, our eyes and our intellect is well able to communicate to us and reveal himself to us. The, the whole universe actually uh, is a display of his handiwork. And, and yet we don't just have the evidence of his handiwork. He's revealed himself personally in history and it's been written down for us in the Bible so that we can know this God too. And before Moses can go and fulfill the mission that God has given him, he must firstly be someone who really knows God. And that's the same for us. So let's think about what this passage reveals. These chapters reveal uh, about God to us. Firstly in verse 2, that he is the living God. And, and I mean that in an absolute sense. I mean, did you ever make a fire that didn't need fuel to keep it going? Every fire known to man needs fuel. Even our brilliant son, I, I learned this past week on a, on a TV program, will eventually start running out of hydrogen in about 5 billion years. So we better start planning. Uh, in 5 billion years, it's going to go out, according to the BBC program. And yet Moses encountered an undying flame that needed no fuel. Here is the living God who requires no other thing to sustain his life. He's the eternal God. He's the God who made the, the, the brilliant sun in our solar system, who exists from everlasting to everlasting. And he comes and reveals himself in the ordinariness of a bush. And I love this. Here is Moses going about his day job when he gets an encounter of the glory of the living God. Verse 5. He is the holy God. Do not come any closer God said, take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Now this is the first time that the word holy uh, is, appears in the Bible. And it gets further developed as you read the rest of the Bible. God, God's essential nature is holiness. His very presence makes all around him holy. And so Moses is standing on holy ground. And God's holiness is here is something that separates himself from us. God is totally different to us uh, from any living thing or person. He's in a totally different category of being. He is the creator. We are the created. We are the, we are the creatures who are dependent upon him. He's far bigger than our feeble intellects can ever really fully perceive or understand. And his moral perfection and purity separates him from us. And so Moses is told to keep his distance. Whenever we, we consider the holiness of God in the Bible, it is a dangerous thing, the holiness of God. God's holiness is awesome and humbling. And Moses needs to remove his sandals as a mark of reverence. And he hides his face out of fear at looking at God. But more than that, verse 6, he is the unchanging and faithful God. Have you ever had the experience of meeting up with someone that you haven't seen for many, many years? What, what's the thing that's going through your head uh, when, you, when you're meeting them? I don't know about you, but this is what's going through my head. It's, I'm asking the question, have they changed? 
Have they changed at all? About a year ago, Sean and I met up with uh, some friends we went to Paris with on uh, their, this, this, this lady's 18th birthday. So it was quite a long time ago, over 20 years ago. And uh, we, we did this trip, and we met up with them about a year ago, and we looked at each other, and we, and we, we all said, oh, you haven't changed at all. It's amazing. Maybe just our eyesight gets worse, or we like lying to each other. But, you know, we, we took out the pictures of Paris, and then we suddenly realized, oh, boy, we really have changed. We have changed. Time has had its impact. But this is an issue that we never have to be concerned about as we consider God. God is constant and unchanging. And that's why God introduces himself in this way in verse 6. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The God who had revealed himself in the past was the same God revealing himself to Moses. All, all the precious promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still stood. God was still being faithful to everyone. And despite the time gap of hundreds of years, um, where it appeared that God was not remembering his promises, he was working behind the scenes in order to fulfill them. And now uh, this unchanging, faithful, covenant God was moving a step forward in the call of this man Moses. And that's why we're spending the time looking at this ancient book. It's not to moralize about the life of, of an ancient man called Moses, but it is to discover the true and living God, the same God, the same living holy, faithful, and unchanging God who we relate with today. And as we approach him ourselves, we do so with the knowledge that the same God who met with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the Apostle Paul, it is the same God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the wonder is this, that this living, holy, unchanging God is, as it says in verse 7, he is the caring God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of the slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. See, God is not indifferent to the circumstances of his people. And at times it seems as if he's far away from us and our sufferings, that our prayers are unanswered. It would have appeared like that to the Hebrew slaves, wouldn't it, in Egypt, as they were struggling with persecution and slavery. But the reality is, though, that God always hears his people's prayers. God sees our afflictions. He's not a detached observer, but he's one who can truly sympathize with our weakness, we learn in the New Testament. Because as it says in verse 8, he is the rescuing God. Look at verse 8. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now this is the great news of the gospel. Our creator God is the God who came down. He came down to rescue and save his people. The God who came down to rescue the Hebrews out of slavery and take them to the promised land is the God who came down in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to be our great rescuer from sin, to be our great rescuer from Satan, to be a great rescuer from death itself. And 
He is the one who promises to guide us into the new heavens and the new earth. This is the character of the God who is there, the God who comes down, the God who rescues. And then finally in verse 10, we need to see he is the commissioning God. So Moses receives this awesome revelation of who God is, of God's concern, and then he finishes with this command, verse 10. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I think there's a big shift going on here from what God is revealing to Moses. Perhaps there was a time when Moses thought he was going to be the hero of his people. But if chapter 2 was about Moses and his failed attempts, chapter 3 is all about God. And the vital lesson for Moses and us to see is that it is God who is the hero. God is the hero. This is what God is going to do. I have come down to deliver them. About 25 years ago now, a sort of revolution took place for me when I read J.I. Packer's classic book, Knowing God. And in reading that book, it just dawned on me in a sort of a unique way that the Bible, that Christianity, that salvation is not about me. It's about God. It's about His glory. It's about His holiness. It's about His grace. God is the hero of the Bible. And he gives us the privilege of being called into his service. God's going to do it, but Moses is his chosen means. Go, I am sending you. Three times in this chapter, God says to Moses, go. <laughs> go, go, go. God's quite clear, isn't he? And I wonder, have we heard the call of God in the gospel? Have we seen the world from God's perspective? Have we seen the misery of, of man's slavery to sin? Have we heard God's call, go, I'm sending you? Now we don't go looking to Exodus chapter 3 for that. We go to Matthew 28, don't we? Which is our, I don't know whether you've noticed this verse this year. This is a big verse, these verses for us at Charlotte Chapel. They're our motto verses. This is what Jesus says to his disciples, doesn't he? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. God sent Moses to prepare his people for the rescue mission that God was going to accomplish. Jesus sends us to tell people about the rescue mission that he has accomplished that he has achieved through his life and death and resurrection. Jesus tells us to go and disciple the nations. We've been reflecting about it uh, this year, to tell the people about the God who saves. Well, I can just stop there, can't I? That's all we need to hear, isn't it? Great, God says go, and we say, great, we're going to go and disciple the nations in this city. We're going to disciple the nations throughout the world. That's what we're going to do. Praise God, we're off. Let's have a closing hymn and get on with it. And yet, when we start hearing this more specifically to us, I think we can hear this in a general way. We can kind of go, yeah, yeah, I know that's in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of true for the whole church. Yeah, that's right, yeah. That's right, that's what we're about. But actually, when we hear the command specifically and personally to ourselves, go, I'm sending you to your, to your mum and dad. 
I'm sending you to your relatives. I'm sending you to your workplace at Scottish Widows or at Standard Life or to the hospital or to your clinic. Go, I'm sending you to plant a church in Leith or I'm going to send you to plant a church in Liberton. Or go, I'm, what, what, what is it he's saying to us? When we start feeling that command very specifically to us, what is our reaction? What's our response? Well, that's when we start saying, uh, but um, hang on, uh, there's a good excuse here. That's what happens, isn't it? And I love the honesty of God's word because that's exactly what Moses says to God. Verse 11, but Moses, but <laughs> Moses said to God. Even the audacity of that. Can you imagine that? You've seen God in his eternality, his, you know, his awesomeness, his holiness. And at and, and, and one stage he's hiding his face from God and then he says, uh, God, but um, uh, there's a problem here. Moses makes five different excuses to God why he definitely wasn't the man for the job. There's the excuse of inadequacy in 3 verse 11 where he says, Who am I? There's the excuse of ignorance in 3 verse 13. What shall I tell them? There's the excuse of ineffectiveness in 4 verse 1. They will not believe me. There's the excuse of incapacity in 4 verse 10. They will, um, I am not eloquent. There's the excuse of unwillingness in 4.13. Oh, Lord, please send someone else. And, and if you, like me, have used any of those excuses, then there's a couple of things that we should observe here. Number one, God doesn't accept them. Number two, God promises himself as the remedy. And I think the grand theme of these chapters is the God who is sufficient. You know, what we need to see is God's sufficiency in our weakness. Let's think about these excuses. Inadequacy in 3 verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now the question seems to have a bit of humility about it, doesn't it? Moses ex expresses the response we can use when we look at our own weakness and failings. But look at the answer God gives in verse 12. God doesn't give him a self-esteem pep talk, does he? doesn't say, now don't talk yourself down, Moses. Come on. Just look at all the years of training you've had. You've got all the right credentials. You, you, you know Pharaoh's, how Pharaoh's court operates. You, you've got a great education, Moses. And you've got all those shepherding survival skills. You just need a positive mental attitude, Moses. I believe in you. You're ready. God doesn't say any of that, does he? God gives him a promise and a sign. Look at the promise. I will be with you. Moses says, who am I that I should go? And God said, I will be with you. It's as if God says, Moses, I didn't say you, were, you would be anybody. The important thing is I will be with you. In all my life, in all my holiness, in all my faithfulness, in all my determination to be a saviour. God is the hero, not us. It is God who would accomplish the mighty act of rescue and deliverance. And I think it's a truth that we need to constantly remind ourselves about. The truth is that I am often you know, feel great sense of inadequacy to be involved in God's work, let alone be an elder, let alone be a pastor. And what we need to remember, what I need to constantly remind myself is this, that God is the hero. 
He is the one who will accomplish his purpose uh, through displaying his sufficiency actually in our weakness, through our weakness. See, what's at the end of the Great Commission, our motto verse? It's exactly the same promise, isn't it? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who has been gifted all authority in heaven and earth, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, he is the one who sends us and promises to be with us as we go. And then God gives Moses a sign. And it's a very surprising sign in verse 12. God says, I'll be with you. And the proof that this will be the case is that when you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship me on this mountain. <coughs> Moses, I'll prove to you that I'm sending you. When you get back here with all the Israelites, you're going to know that I'm the God who sent you. Is that the sort of sign you're interested in? No, I think we want signs before things happen, don't we? Uh, even though we know that Gideon's fleece was a sign of unbelief, we're forever looking for extra evidences that God wants us to be involved in mission. Go, I'm sending you. Yes, Lord, but if you, if you do this, then I'll know you want me to go. Uh, if you do this, then I'll know. Well, actually, we've got the command. Go and make disciples. That's it. That's all we need. Uh, God often calls us to follow him by faith. And the confirming signs come later. Of course, there was no doubt when they eventually came back to this mountain with uh, all the Israelites and God was present there. There was no doubt who had done the job, that God had done it. There was no doubt that God had been with them. Now, we don't have the time to look at every excuse in the same depth, but in each excuse, God meets it in, in, in the same way with his own sufficiency. Look at the second one there of ignorance in 3 verse 13. He says, what shall I tell them? What shall I tell them? If, if Moses feels ignorant, the great thing is God's more than willing to educate. From verse 14 onwards there, God gives Moses masses of information. God not only tells him about himself, but about his plans, verse 16 to 18, about exactly the course of events in verse 19 to 21, and then even the final outcome in verse 22. See, what looked so uncertain and doubtful to Moses was all planned and clear to God. God knew exactly what he was going to accomplish. The central point, though, is God's answer about his identity again. If they ask, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? Verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilt on the revelation of God's name, which is represented in the Hebrew text as four uh, Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H. And in the past, uh, people used to think this was a contraction of the name Jehovah, uh, as the King James Bible uses that. But most scholars today think it's more likely to be Yahweh, but we, we, don't, we don't actually know the answer. We just have those four letters. But the most significant issue here is, is about what it signifies. And I think the most satisfying answer to me is that, that it is a statement of God's eternal sufficiency. Whatever needs the Hebrews had, 
Whatever needs that we have as his people, God can address those needs as the eternal I am. The self-existing, eternal, omnipotent God. God is the ever-living, ever-present God, actively involved with his people for the meeting of their needs. This is the message and the theology that Moses is to take down to Egypt. They needed salvation, so God was going to come and be their savior. This God, the I am, Yahweh, Jehovah, is the God who acts because of covenant promise to be the savior of his people. But Moses keeps going. 4 verse 1, the excuse of ineffectiveness. Well, what if they don't believe me? And then God gives him three signs to help the people believe. And they're highly symbolic signs relating to the Egyptian culture. If you ever see pictures of old Egypt, you'll see that many, quite often the crowns that the pharaohs wore uh, were, were often made into the shape of a snake. Uh, it was a picture of authority, of kingship. And Moses' rod would always be a picture to him of God's uh, transforming power. The day he threw it down, it turned into a snake. That's a day you're not going to forget. And then you've got the leprous hand, something that was famed to be beyond cure, and yet God gets him to be, have a leprous hand, put it back in his cloak, and be made brand new. It's a picture of God's resurrecting, regenerating power. And the Nile, of course, was, was the essence of the Egyptian life. But God displays his conquering power by turning it into blood, which he does in one of the plagues. Then you've got the excuse of incapacity, 4 verse 10. Oh Lord, I've never been eloquent. And God says, well, who made your mouth? Now go, verse 12. God's not having it, is he? Every excuse is graciously dealt with by God. But finally, we come to this uncomfortable reality behind all the excuses. Now, here's the ultimate statement in 4 verse 13. But Moses said, Oh Lord, please send someone else. You ever felt that? The bottom line is Moses' disobedience. At one level, it's totally shocking, isn't it? Imagine what he saw that day. His hand. A snake. Water into blood. Fiery bush. God speaking to him. And he says, pass. It's shocking, and yet I think it's something we all understand, isn't it? Here am I. Send him. Well, more often with missions, here am I, send her. And we need to honestly look at God's response in verse 14. The Lord's anger burned against Moses. I think we need to be roused to see that the Lord does hate unbelief. He hates unbelief. To think that God has given all that reassurance and Moses is still not prepared to trust him. Now, how much more evidence we have of God's mercy and grace in our lives? Moses was being asked to trust God before the Exodus event. Now, we look back and see that God accomplished it all. We look back and see that uh, God fulfilled his promise to send the Christ in Jesus, of seeing his death and resurrection. And all we wait for now is his second coming and the final judgment. And yet we hold back. 
Now, the wonderful thing here is to see that while God's anger is aroused, his grace prevails. And God comes back with a gracious accommodation. In fact, when you read this text, you realize that God's already sorted out that Aaron would start a journey to Sinai, quite a long way from Egypt. You know, God kind of knew all the excuses that were coming up. God's already made provision, even as he's angry to see the unbelief. He says, look, Moses, I know he can speak. God knows who the talkers are here. Uh, he says, I know that Aaron. He, he, he's got the gift of the gap. He can talk. And God makes provision. And so after all of that, Moses finally goes. Now, I was tempted to finish there today. But I know that some of you might come up to me afterwards and ask me about these strange verses at the end of verses 24 to 26. And actually, thinking about it, this is a great text for Mother's Day. Great text for Mother's Day. You'd never have picked it, but this is the beauty of expository preaching. Suddenly in the narrative, when Moses and his family are traveling down to Egypt, it says that the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. What? God... God does all that preparatory work, all that stuff, and then he's going to go and just kill him? And at that point, Zipporah takes a flint knife, Moses' wife, and circumcises her son. Now these verses sound even more challenging in the King James Version, where Zipporah turns to her husband and says, A bloody husband thou art. It's a great section for Mother's Day, isn't it? And what's the main point of these verses? I think it's this, that God's holiness demands obedience. God's holiness demands obedience. See, from Abraham onwards, God's special covenant promise to Abraham was to be marked by him and his offspring with the sign of circumcision. But here's Moses heading off to do covenant business for God, but he's still living in covenant disobedience. His son was not circumcised. And God's holiness demands obedience to such an extent that it turns out Moses is quite disposable in God's purposes. Now fathers today should note this. Who was God holding accountable here? It's the man, isn't it? Moses. It's the father. Moses was responsible as the head of his household in this matter of obedience to God's words. Fathers, I think we should be sobered by that. There's a responsibility on us to lead our households in obedience to God's words. And mothers should note that not for the last time in history, a godly wife ends up saving the day and saving her man, her husband. And I think God was teaching Moses an important lesson. God could have killed him outright without any warning, I guess. But God's anger is put aside by the actions of Zipporah. She circumcises the lad and touches Moses' feet with the blood. And it's just another small picture, I think, of how the blood of covenant, obedience, takes away the anger of God and enables us to continue to serve a living God in just a little picture form. This is what restored Moses and enabled him to carry on serving God. And it is the ongoing application of the blood of Christ for us 
that enables us to continue in service and fellowship with the living God. How can God put up with all our excuses? Well, because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How does he put up with our ongoing sin? Well, it's because the precious sacrifice of his son applied ongoingly to us that enables us to continue in service and fellowship with him. I read somewhere, and I can't remember where it is now, that Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning something. He was 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing. And he was 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. Well, what of us? Will we be obedient to the Great Commission in dependence upon the God who is sufficient? Have we answered the call? Go, I am sending you. And as the end of the chapter shows, when we do go, the result is that enslaved people hear great news about God and it leads them to worship God. That's the end result of when we're willing to go for God, trusting in his sufficiency. Will will we go this week for him? Gracious God, we thank you that we can come today only through uh, the blood of your Son, his atoning death in our place. And we seek your grace and your mercy today. We ask your forgiveness for ways that we have um, bottled, uh, the way that we've made excuses, the way that we have let you down. We want to thank you for your grace and your mercy. We want to thank you that we have great news for an enslaved and lost world. And we pray that you would give us grace to trust you. Lord, not to look at ourselves, not to look at whether we are holy enough or eloquent enough or smart enough, but we would be willing, Lord, just to use the people that you've made us to be in your service and trust that you will be glorified and use weak people uh, like us. We ask this, that uh, more people in Edinburgh will become worshippers of you that you be glorified in the city. We ask this in Christ's precious name.